0: Derek is ready, this is his third time today, what a preaching, we thought we'd work him hard, Um, but it's an amazing message, and so I will hand straight over to Derek. So I have a sense of compassion for some of the brothers who are hearing this the third time, it's a case of brainwashing. Um... You are about to begin a series in this church called Kingdom Carriers, and I'm sure it's going to be stupendous, but it will be helpful if you know what the kingdom is you're supposed to be carrying. And so my job is to give you a once one-shot summary of the whole biblical theme of the kingdom of God, which I normally cover in five or six hours of teaching um, ad nauseam. and I'm now Putting it into one shot and you will get to have your booze later on. I will finish at some point (laughs) Um, So I think you probably know that the kingdom of God is the central uh, theology of the vineyard around which we revolve not only as a theology, but also a practice and it is the core of what uh, drives us and motivates us so it is a good core to have because this is the mission and message of Jesus. This is what he was all about. And so, just to make clear that he spoke continually about the kingdom, it was always on his lips, it was the one subject that was most frequently in his teaching. Let's just go through a few statements here. This is how his ministry began. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So that's how he inaugurated his ministry. Then Matthew tells us he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So it was a message that was enacted. He didn't just teach about it, he did it. Did it everywhere he went. Then many people believe that the Beatitudes are like some of the most pithy summaries of all of his teaching. And there in the middle, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When he commissioned his disciples to be kingdom carriers, to take his message, he gave them these instructions, as you go, preach this message. Very specific, the kingdom of heaven is near. And then we know that he taught many parables, and all the parables were explaining the kingdom. So the parable of the sower and the seed begins like this. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And all the parables, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And then we also find that the famous prayer he taught his disciples to pray, people call it the Lord's Prayer, but I really think it should be the kingdom prayer is the nearest thing we can find in the teaching of Jesus to a definition of the kingdom. So he said, pray this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom is an event that takes place. It obviously hasn't happened yet because he says pray that it will come. And it is an event that is going to occur in history when it comes. Now, many people think, you know, the kingdom is about God being the sovereign ruler of the universe, and of course, that's true, and from eternity to eternity, God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, but that's not what Jesus was talking about here. He was talking about a specific moment when God's kingdom would come, and in Uh, Jewish wisdom teaching like the Proverbs often you have two lines where the second line is the explanation of the previous line so what is it for the kingdom of God to come it is for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven our English translation kingdom is not really a very good one because the Greek literally means the reign and rule of God it is the execution of of his sovereignty on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus is saying, pray for the day when God intervenes in history and he executes his will on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the kingdom of God is about. So in this first message that Jesus gave, he talked about the time being fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The conference we just went to was entitled, Now is the Time. Well, you could have quoted Jesus' as opening his ministry by saying, Now is the time. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when Jesus said that in a first century Jewish environment, nobody needed to have it explained. Because for centuries, the Jews had a growing expectation and longing for the day when the kingdom of God would come. And so Jesus was speaking into a very clear set of expectations. So for us to understand what Jesus meant, we need to track with those expectations. And that's a long story, but we can do it very quickly. The theme of the kingdom in the Old Testament goes in stages like growing windows. And the first event of the kingdom is the Exodus event, where there is a nation in slavery, suffering, they cry out to God, and God enters into history, and through miraculous signs and wonders, the plagues of Egypt, he delivers his people and liberates them. And free, with, the, with Pharaoh's army drowned in the sea, they sing a prophetic song, And at the end of it, they sing, Yahweh, which is the name for God, will reign forever and ever. In other words, in this event of him liberating his people, he became their king. In fact, he became a conquering king, conquering those who had enslaved them and liberating them. A king who is for them and behind them. So that is the first place in the scripture where this idea of the inbreaking of God's will on earth being done in heaven like it is in heaven. Then it gets bigger in the period of the Davidic monarchy. So from the Exodus, they went through the wilderness, entered the promised land, and eventually David and Solomon became the kings of Israel. And for a golden age, through David, God ruled a nation on earth. He was the Messiah or the anointed one, adopted to be God's representative on earth. And so because David ruled, God ruled. God ruled through David ruling. And it was a time of incredible prosperity, of peace, of power, of social cohesion, uh, worship, a golden age. And Israel never forgot that era where God ruled on earth as it is in heaven for a few generations. But then, like humans often do, they blew it. And they started worshiping other gods and backsliding, and God warned them through prophets. And eventually, they lost the kingdom and they were sent into exile in Babylon. And they, you know, went into a kind of spiritual depression. And there in the dark night of Babylonian captivity, the prophet of Israel began to hear a new word from God. That just as the kingdom of God had come in the Exodus event and the Davidic monarchy, so in the future, one day, God's kingdom will come again. But this time, it will eclipse everything that has preceded it. As the Americans say, you ain't seen nothing yet could summarize the message of the prophets and so the prophetic promise especially in the prophet isaiah is a grand vision of what god is going to do in fact he is going to create a new world this world as we know it will end and a new age will dawn where every form of human bondage will be liberated from people will be liberated from sickness, from sin, from fear, from death. Even God will come and liberate humanity. And even creation or nature will be restored. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And everything that has gone wrong with God's creation, he will put right. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful grand vision of the coming kingdom. And so when Jesus stood up that day and said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here. He was making an incredible statement and an incredible claim that God is about to come and decisively end this world and begin his new world. But then, of course, after that high point of these great prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel promising all of this, for hundreds of years, God promptly did absolutely nothing. He stopped even talking to them, and they just got even more into despair, ruled relentlessly by foreign kings, uh, the, the Greeks and the Romans, that just taxed them to death and oppressed them, and they cried out, you know, in despair. And then suddenly, out of the wilderness, comes this hairy man, a prophet, eating locusts and wild honey, and he says, it's here, the Messiah is about to arrive, and the whole nation was stirred, and he baptized them to get them ready, and then Jesus comes, and he points, and he says, there he is, and it's difficult to exaggerate the drama of the opening of the ministry of Jesus, after this great expectation created in the Old Testament, then hundreds of years of nothing, and then suddenly, The ministry of Jesus begins. And so if you open Mark's gospel, you will find that the favorite word he uses is the word immediately, or if it's a new international version, at once. And everything happens immediately. So Jesus goes into a synagogue and immediately a demon manifests and he speaks to the demon and it leaves. He leaves that synagogue, he goes into Simon's house and right there, Simon's mother is sick and he heals her. The village hears about it. That very evening, they all arrive, and he heals everybody that's sick in the village. Early the next morning, he gets up and says, let's get moving. I've got to take this message to every town in Israel. And it's like, you know, nothing has happened for 500 years, and now everything happens on one day. And Jesus is on the move. And he's saying, the time has come. Here it is. The next word that expresses the essence of what happened in the ministry of Jesus is the word authority. It's used all the time, especially in Mark's gospel. The authority of Jesus, the clash of his authority against alternative authorities. And this is really a kingdom word because it's saying, you see, when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, his authority is being manifest. And Jesus is exercising the authority of the rule of God. He is the very embodiment that's God, that God's kingdom has come. And so he has incredible teaching authority. They hear him and they say, we've never heard anything like this. He doesn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. He teaches with authority. When he called people to leave their businesses and follow him, they just dropped everything and followed him. As though they were helpless. So authoritative was his call. He had authority over demons. The Jews of those days used to have long rituals of trying to exorcise demons. And Jesus would just speak a word, go. And sometimes hundreds of demons would be expelled. And people were amazed at this authority. He had authority to forgive sin. So the famous story of the paralyzed man led through the roof. Jesus says to him, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, stand up and walk. You know, in that time, the only legitimate, legitimate place where you were supposed to have your sins forgiven was to go to the temple, take a sacrifice, go to the priests, and they could forgive you. He has somebody operating completely outside of the temple system, and he's not just saying to this man, um, I am pardoning you, you know, for the sins you did for the last few weeks. He's actually saying, I am pardoning you eternally for your eternal destiny before God. That's really what he's saying. And then he says, stand up and walk to prove it. And the guy stands up and walks to prove that he has been pardoned. And of course, that was very controversial. Uh, the, The Jewish people hearing him thought he was being blasphemous to do that. Then he had this wonderful habit of wrecking funeral services. The Jews used to wail loudly as they went on their procession to the grave, and, you know, Jesus would walk up to a dead body and, and uh, raise it from the dead. And then, of course, I'm sure there was lots of howling with other connotations of joy when Jesus did that. And there are a number of stories of Jesus bringing dead people back to life, including a very smelly Lazarus. And he said, come out. He even had authority over nature. He could speak to a storm and say, down. And it would obey him. And it's interesting that only at that point did the disciples ask a very obvious question. Like, who are you? (laughs) That you can do this. See, and actually what they're seeing is a demonstration of the very executive power of God himself in Jesus. And this list of things, by the way, exactly ticks off all the predictions of Isaiah about what it would be like when the Messiah comes. And so Jesus is fulfilling the expectations of the coming kingdom of God. However, he did not fulfill all of their expectations. So one of their greatest expectations was political liberation, that the Messiah would be a great military leader like David had been, and that he would fight the Romans and drive them out of the country and Israel would be restored to national sovereignty. And Jesus did not seem to be at all interested in that. And so John the Baptist who introduced Jesus, great prophet John the Baptist, is now in prison about to have his head chopped off by Herod. And you know, I guess we should give him a bit of slack. If you start getting a bit of doubt when you're head is about to be chopped off it's understandable so he sends a group of his disciples to Jesus and says are you the one are you really the Messiah because you know I'm going to die here and it's interesting Jesus intentionally says go and tell John the Baptist what you see in here the lame walk the blind see the deaf hear The dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. You know, he used to multiply food for the poor and stuff. In other words, God's social justice, overturning the injustice of this world, long predicted by the prophets of the Old Testament, that is also happening. And he's basically saying, tick, 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 I'm doing all the things that Isaiah predicted would happen. But then he says this. He says, and blessed are those who are not stumbled at me. As though he knew that there was something uh, mysterious about the nature of the kingdom. So the third word that is important is the word mystery. He said to his disciples, to those outside, I speak in parables, but to you, I give the secrets or the mystery of the kingdom of God. And in other words, admitting, if you like, that there was something quite mysterious about the way the kingdom of God had come in him. So this leads us to Jesus teaching about the kingdom, which is manifold right through the gospels. He's teaching about it all the time. And if you read it all, and you summarize it, you get even more confused. Because there are at least four tracks to Jesus teaching about the kingdom. The first track is that along with all the literature of the Old Testament, The kingdom of God is a future event yet to happen at the end of history. So he gives these sermons, like on the mount. He gave this great sermon about how a nation will rise against nation. There will be civil wars. There will be false prophets. There will be false Christs. And then there will be a terrible time of tribulation, a long period of suffering. And then he said suddenly, like the lightning lights up the sky, the Son of Man will come, and the Son of Man is the one who comes to judge humanity, and he will sit on his throne, and he will separate humanity into the sheep and the goats, and some will go to everlasting life, and some will go to everlasting uh, damnation. Um, And, I mean, that was the expectation of Israel. And so with the book of Revelation, it describes this end-of-the-world apocalyptic final intervention of God that changes everything. And so from all of those verses, you would say the kingdom is still an end-of-the-world event. But with equal clarity, Jesus taught that in his ministry, the long-awaited kingdom was now present. So he said, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he was there, standing in the midst of them. He said, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, in other words, as John handed over to him, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. The rule of God is breaking into history. So all of that says the kingdom of God is now present in his ministry. And the way he answered the messengers from John the Baptist says that. Go and tell John what you see. I'm doing it all. Then lest we aren't sufficiently confused. He then says, no, wait a bit. It's not actually here. It's near. And he says to his disciples who were young men, he said, you will not die before you see the kingdom of God come in power. He gives them a commission to go and preach to the whole of Israel. And he says, you will not have finished your mission to all the towns and villages of Israel before you see the kingdom of God come. So he's saying it's gonna come in this generation. And along with that is the nuance of this word near. And it kind of conjures up the idea of a thunderstorm that's building. And you can hear the thunder. And you can almost smell the rain. But it hasn't fallen yet. Or a woman who's in labor pains. And the labor pains are advanced. And the baby is going to come at any minute. But it hasn't come yet. And so he's really saying that history is pregnant with the any minute arrival of the kingdom. It's a near event hovering over us, but it's not yet here. And then lest we still aren't confused enough, he said, look, don't be confused. It's been delayed. And he tells these many parables about like the landowner who gave commands and talents to his servants. And then he goes on a long journey and it says, after a long time, he came back. And Luke tells us that Jesus taught that parable because some people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, and it was delayed. So how mysterious is this kingdom that Jesus said, look to you I give the secrets of the mystery of the kingdom of God. And so the next sentence I'm going to utter is the greatest revelation you've ever received, right? You've got to get this revelation. The mystery of the kingdom is this, that it is always simultaneously present, near, delayed, and future. Now, most events we can conceive of cannot possibly be future and present at the same time. But you know, God can do things that we cannot conceive of. And so there's a kind of prophetic mystery because many Prophetic statements in the Old Testament Seem to hold together The near and the distant future In the same prophecy And of course Since Einstein's theory of relativity uh, The future And the present can somehow Be confused as well So of all generations of humans Who should not be overly confused By the mystery of the kingdom It's us So This diagram i'm going to show you is used by many bible teachers but i've kind of made my own version of it that explains the worldview of judaism at the time of jesus their expectations all the old testament prophets and then the mystery of how jesus comes and so their view was that god deals with humanity in a linear progression of time century after century from creation through promise and fulfillment, moving the destiny of his people to a moment called the end. The Greek word is the word eschatos, from which we get the word eschatology, which just means endology. It's the doctrine of the end times. When God will decisively intervene in history and his kingdom will come. And then life will be lived on a much higher plane, a much greater quality of life. And this is beautifully poetically described in the book of Revelation. Now, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And there will be no more sickness and no more death and no more mourning. Because the former things have passed away. God has made everything new. And God has come down to be with his people. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. And he is our God and we are his people and we are in covenant relationship forever and his, temp- his glory fills the temple and the temple is actually the whole of creation and God has renewed everything. And that was their expectation. What they never conceived of was that somehow mysteriously all the things that God is going to do in that future world would arrive prematurely and in advance now in Jesus. So that in his message and ministry, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, in his ascension, which unleashed the power of Pentecost, to use the language of the book of Hebrews, the powers of the coming age broke from the future into the present. And so it's here, but it's not quite here. And, and actually, it's going to take quite a few centuries to come. And actually, it's future, all at the same time. And we as Christians are as mysterious as the kingdom, because we are born into an, a, a reality where while this world has not yet been terminated, for us... The next world has already begun. And so Jesus says, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. And the word eternal life means the life of the coming ages. If you believe in me, you will not enter into future judgment, the day of judgment at the end of history. You have already passed from death to life. For you, the day of judgment has already occurred. And so in all of these mysterious ways, The kingdom has become present, and we live in a place where two ages overlap simultaneously. And they actually war within us for supremacy. We are caught in what scholars call eschatological tension, in the tension of the two ages. And you see, our pre-Christian friends, who we, we pray for to become Christians, they live a one-dimensional life where it's pretty straightforward. We live a very confusing life. In fact, we should probably warn them. (laughs) Be careful if you want to join this thing called knowing Jesus because you'll suddenly be living in in a reality at the same time that's from the future world and you will actually personally meet the end of the world. And then you'll still have to live in this world. And if I'm a bit weird sometimes, my non-Christian friend, please, please understand. I've got problems. <laughs> I'm living in two realities at the same time. See, Hopefully that will intrigue them as well. So, once you've understood this paradigm, it's, it's like a key that unlocks everything. It's like a pair of spectacles you put on. It's like, aha! Now I see. And What you see is Jesus in a new light and the whole of the New Testament in a new light. So scholars have tried to find language because this is such a big deal. It's such a kind of insight to put it all together. And obviously slogans like this are too simple, but they do help us to hang our thoughts on. So the writer who influenced uh, John the uh, the Baptist, (laughs) John Wimber, Um, a guy called George Ladd, His book was entitled The Presence of the Future, and I think that says it very nicely. Um, A phrase that is very common in the vineyard and all over the place where this is understood is the already and the not yet. So if you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, is the kingdom of God here already? He would say yes. There's a demon that went out, there's a person healed, there's thousands of people I've just fed miraculously, Um, the kingdom of God is right here. And then if you said, Jesus, is the kingdom of God not yet here? He would say, it's not yet here. It's only going to come at the end of history. And both of those statements would be true at the same time. And then if you want to really wax theological, you would use this phrase, enacted, inaugurated eschatology. Which actually isn't that heavy, because eschatology is the doctrine of the end of the world. Inaugurated eschatology means before the end of the world happens, the end of the world's powers are already being inaugurated in history, introduced in advance. And enacted means this is not just a teaching that Jesus brought. It is a demonstration. He didn't just come with theories. He said the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he did it in front of their eyes. So these are helpful phrases that explain this understanding of the kingdom. And that then gives us lenses to look afresh at the story of Jesus and the story of the New Testament. And so we find everything about Jesus is the kingdom of God, is eschatological. So his proclamation and demonstration is the coming of the kingdom. His cross is the coming of the kingdom. And so Jesus explained that when he is lifted up on the cross, all of humanity will be drawn into him And he said about it, now is the judgment of this world. And what he was basically saying is, yes, there's a day of judgment coming at the end of history. But in his crucifixion, God is going to bring the day of judgment now. And in his dying with all of us involved in him, we have been tried Like he was tried. We have been found guilty like he was found guilty. We have been crucified. We have been buried. And everything that we, uh, let's say, deserved in terms of justice has happened. And behold, in him we popped up out of the grave. And we are home free. And so if we believe in him, we will not enter into the future judgment. We've already had our life judged and liberated so all of humanity has a choice which day of judgment do you want to show up for if you believe in jesus you show up for the day of judgment that has already happened and then you can never be judged again and that's the basis of us being able to say i know that i've been eternally pardoned and nothing will ever change that but if you don't believe in jesus you will surely show up for the day of judgment that is to come But what a wonderful liberating message that for us it's all over. We are free of our sin. We are permanently justified by grace through faith because the day of judgment already occurred in the cross of Jesus and we were there in him when it occurred. But the one that really excites me is the resurrection of Jesus because in the phenomenon of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, you literally see what the future world is going to look like. And so in the gospel narratives, you find Jesus manifested a kind of body that was uh, real, tangible, had flesh and bones, ate fish, could be embraced, and yet appeared in the middle of a locked room. And then after walking miles to a place called Emmaus with them, sat down, had a meal, and then promptly disappeared out of their sight. And then suddenly was in Jerusalem. So a body that is physically, tangibly real, but transcends the normal limitations of physicality that our bodies have. And this is not science fiction. This is narrated for weeks. Jesus uh, revealed this kind of body to them. And the really exciting thing is that the New Testament teachers... That his risen body is the prototype of the body he is going to give us in the coming world and we will suddenly be transformed one day and we will get a body like his no longer bound by space or time and yet physically real may be able to walk through walls and then be hugged on the other side and the older I get the more excited I become about this body because Clearly, we will be given a body like we had at the peak of life, and you should have seen my body at the peak of life. <clears throat> I was a sunburnt surfer and water skier and sailor, and used to charm all the girls from the high country who nearly drowned in the sea, um, and so on. I want that body back, and I am expecting. See, so. Of everything you can think about in all of history and everything in the Bible, the greatest revelation of the coming kingdom is the risen body of Jesus. Very exciting. Almost as exciting is the way Peter explained Pentecost. So now the Holy Spirit has been poured out, they are overwhelmed, they are speaking in tongues, fire is falling upon them, and the people say, what is this? Peter says, this is what Joel prophesied, In the last days, I will pour out my spirit into the world stuff. And what has happened is the power that God will pour out at the end of history to like harvest humanity for the day of judgment and raise everybody from the dead to judgment. That power has been poured out prematurely now in Pentecost. And so Pentecost is the powers of the coming age. And you see, in, in that final moment, the power of God will come on the bodies we have, whether we're in the grave or whether we're alive, and every molecule and cell in our bodies will be translated into this phenomenon of the, of the risen body of Jesus. I mean, what kind of a zap is that going to be? To me, it's like, you know, if the experiences we have the Holy, of the Holy Spirit now are like 12 volts, it's like thousands of volts. But some of the, and so the Bible teaches that the works of the Holy Spirit we have now are foretastes. they down payments of what God's going to do when the kingdom finally comes. Now I tell you, I've seen some foretastes that are overwhelming where the Holy Spirit comes on people. And people experience ecstasy and just and or revelation or they look like they're being electrocuted and things like that. Um, because I've had the privilege of living through quite a few revival uh, moments in, in history. And if those are just little shots of the big shot that's coming, who can conceive of the joy and the power and the ecstasy when finally the kingdom of God comes and our bodies are transformed and we are like Jesus? So the whole understanding of Pentecost as the down payment, the powers of the coming ages, very exciting so once we've understood this understanding of the kingdom everything changes John Wimber who founded the vineyard he said once you get the kingdom all the books are going to have to be rewritten your lens changes and so a whole lot of implications roll out from the kingdom the first implication is that if God's government on earth, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is embodied in everything Jesus says and does, then Jesus is God coming to visit us. And so John talks about how the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Now that literally the temple was Jesus, God coming to humanity. Another implication is that if the end of the world powers broke into history in Jesus and in Pentecost, then ever since then, we have been living in the end. And we are living in the end, moving towards the end of the end, until we get to the very end. We are living in the last days, moving towards the last day, the last of the last days, until we arrive at the last day. So all of... Christian history is living in the powers of the last days, breaking into the present. That means that the barrier between this world and the world to come is, is permeable, wonderfully symbolized by the moment when as Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And the inner sanctuary represented seeing God face to face, which we will experience in the coming age. And the outer court, where they had bread and wine and incense and things like that, symbolized indirect experience of God. And as Jesus dies, these two chambers no longer have a barrier between them. And so at any minute, the future direct glory of God, can invade the present. And that means that understanding the kingdom means we live in a, in a, in a world of continual expectation. As some, one scholar said, in any moment there is the possibility of the last moment of history happening. And so I've seen this kind of in my experience with the ups and downs of revivals You can be in meetings sometimes, you know, nice, civilized meetings, well-behaved people like you, and we just do a hymn and a thing and a sermon and go and have drinks, and then we just do a silly thing. We say, Lord, will you come? And then all heaven breaks loose. And I've been in meetings where the power of God suddenly has fallen. And three hours later, we've been carrying people into cars because they can't walk. Because they just had their personal Pentecost. It's such fun. It happened to our church. And it was an amazing moment. Um, we'd heard that the Toronto thing had started. We got a tape of, of um, Eleanor Mumford telling the HTB staff And it was played at our pastor's conference, and all heaven broke loose. And I had buried my father, and I wasn't there, and I was quite disappointed. And so my friend, a pastoral colleague, phoned, and he didn't get me. He got my daughter. And he said, look, tell your dad that God arrived in our conference. It was astonishing. And she said, Dad, it was really funny, because I put down the phone, and my ear was blood red for like half an hour after that. Whoa, what is that? It's like the part of the body that got the message got overwhelmed. And so I just, <clears throat> you don't mind me telling some of these stories. I, I went to our service that Sunday morning and I said, guys, there's a revival breaking out. The Vineyard in Toronto, the Holy Trinity Brompton Church and, in England and so on. <clears throat> now it's happened at our own pastor's conference. It's coming closer. <laughs> and I said, I'm just gonna pray. And I prayed a simple prayer, and the power of God hit three or four people in our church immediately. Some of them were my, my, my daughters because they'd grown up seeing the power of God with a guy called Lonnie Frisbee, who was the founder of the Jesus People Revival. And it just started on and on and on. And eventually, that Sunday, my wife was teaching the children, the sort of mid-age 10 to 12-year-olds, And the reading for that day was the day of Pentecost. Just coincidentally. And these kids arrived through the door and as they stepped into the meeting it's like they stepped into a power zone and the power of God came upon them and they started prophesying. I'll never forget it. Some of them now falling on the floor and pointing to the adults and speaking prophetic words to them. And Three hours later we carried some of them into the cars. And one young guy driving home with his dad said, Dad, can church be like this every day? You know, see? And that was just out of nowhere. Suddenly, the barrier between this world and the next world is torn apart. And and we live in this world where we expect this to happen. Of course, it doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes we just live boring lives, go to work, come back, oh well. But we have in Christ a life that is studded with God's surprises, where the power of the coming age breaks into the present. And when God's power comes, literally anything can happen when the kingdom of God comes. It can lead to mass conversions, people being forgiven. It can lead to healing. It can lead to all sorts of experiences of joy. All sorts of things are possible because all of it is inherent in the big understanding of the breakthrough of the kingdom of God. Another implication is that revivals are therefore the repeated inbreakings of the kingdom of God because if Pentecost was described as the powers of the end of the world breaking into history, and revivals are basically fresh Pentecosts. It means that the inbreaking of the kingdom happens again and again and again. And my reading of history is that if you look at the gaps between revivals, they're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Sometimes in the beginning, hundreds of years between revivals and church history. But the 20th century and the 21st century, one after another after another. So, in my very ancient life, that's a joke, right? (laughs) I have, no, it's deadly serious. I have lived through at least four great moves of the Holy Spirit the Jesus people revival, where a few hundred thousand hippies with flowers in their hair found Jesus, the charismatic renewal, where Anglicans and Methodists and stuff started getting filled with the Spirit. The time when Wimber and Frisbee came and uh, New Wine was born and HTB was born and the vineyard in this country was born, all out of that revival. And then 94 to 97, when most of you weren't born, um, a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit that spread like wildfire around the world. And so sometimes people say, well, can't we live in revivals all the time? I don't know why we don't. All I know is this is how it works. And the next one is probably just around the corner. Because as we move in the last days towards the last of the last days, I think more and more of the last days happen. And, and my expectation is history, of the history of the gospel is not sort of winding down. It's winding up into a climax of history. And we're part of it. This is also the framework for understanding world missions. So what does it mean to be kingdom carriers? We become the subversive agents of God's plan to get his planet back and to renew humanity. And where we go, we announce and we demonstrate that God has a future world. He has promised for humanity. But we have it. We've got it and we can actually spread it in the world. And nothing but the whole of humanity is our mission field. Forget about Cardiff, that's too small for you guys. Not even Wales is big enough. See, our mandate is humanity. And of course we have to start in our city, in our province, in our country. Jerusalem, Judea, but to the ends of the earth. We have a gigantic calling. Because it is nothing nothing less than God's vision for his planet and for humanity. This is the way to understand the mystery of the Christian life. I don't know if you've worked out yet, but being a Christian is quite odd. And if the kingdom is an already not yet reality, and you are born into the kingdom, that makes you an already not yet person. So, to use the tenses of the Bible, we, we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Or, you've got it, you're getting it, and you will finally get it. And we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as the power <clears throat> of God's rule increasingly comes into our lives. And actually, what Paul teaches is that when you meet Jesus, his nature is placed within you, and the very image of God is is restored inside of you, and you become a new you living in the future world, but you still sometimes wrestle with the old you still living in this world, but increasingly the new you stands up inside of you and kind of beats up the old you until the new you consumes you, and you become just like Jesus, and when you see him, you will be like him. But this tension between the two is a little bit disconcerting sometimes. So you have moments where you're just full of God and you're so happy and you changed and I'm a new creature. And then other moments where you fail God and you fail yourself and you think, goodness, am I even converted? And you think, am I confused? No, you're just a normal, mysterious Christian living in the, conflict of two ages that you have and that's why you are more mysterious than your pre-Christian friends this is the only way to understand the wonderful and extremely frustrating ministry of healing so you know I've I've seen wonderful healings Uh, my wife had one leg shorter than the other and somebody prayed for her and it grew And now she's normal. Well, in most ways. Um, And all sorts of stories, lots of stories of healing. And it is so wonderful when you lay hands on somebody and they are healed. Um, But then, of course, there are other times when we lay hands on people and they're not healed. And it's really very simple. How come when we pray for sick people they are healed? Because the kingdom of God is here. And how come sometimes they're not healed? Because the kingdom of God is not yet here. And it's no use finding other explanations. I didn't have enough faith. I didn't pray enough. The person I was praying for hadn't repented properly. Whatever the truth may be about those things, the fact is healing happens in the mystery of the fact that the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is not yet here. And what we must not do is put people through a guilt trip as though it's their responsibility why they weren't healed or our responsibility. why. No, this is how it, it works. But that doesn't mean we must now cop out and back off and say, well, it's a mysterious thing, so I'm not gonna pray for the sick. No, Jesus commanded us, go and preach to people. The kingdom of God is here and pray for them to be healed. And the more you do it, the more you will see God moving. And the more you will see God using healing as the vehicle of the gospel. Then this is the framework to understand the relationship between the church and society. And just as in healing, you get people going off into two extremes. Too much of the already or too much of the not yet. So, some people have the attitude that Christians don't get involved in issues of social justice and the poor and... Things like that. Because this is an evil world. It's getting worse and worse. It's going to burn. All we've got to do is get people saved and keep them saved until the second coming. Holding on by the skin of their teeth. Well, that is t- terribly depressing. It's, no, it's not the case. Actually, if you look at the history of revivals, particularly, sometimes whole nations are transformed for centuries by the social implications of of the gospel of jesus christ so if you read your history as the english nation wesley and whitfield and what this nation was like before and what this nation was like afterwards you will see the power of revivals and so we are called to engage and confront the injustices of this world in the name of the god who wants his planet back and humanity back and we Bring the rule of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But neither do we have a naive hope that any nation on this earth will become a utopia and a Christian nation and that sort of thing before Jesus comes. Because only really when Jesus comes will justice totally prevail. But we can bring a big slice of God's justice into this world in the meantime and reach out to the poor. And then finally, this is the framework for understanding Christian, the Christian stewardship of, environment, of the environment. See, if the kingdom of God is a time when there's a new heaven and a new earth, and global warming is reduced, and this planet is restored um, by God, and if that future kingdom is broken into the present in Jesus, then within us is the mandate to faithfully steward creation, because the kingdom of God is also present. And so, kingdom-oriented Christians are green Christians. Doesn't mean they've joined the green political party. It means we know that we are be, we have been called to the environment. And any kind of Christian that says no, we're not called to the environment has not understood the kingdom of God. We are called. So let me just close this and get in your face a little bit. This is a vision that is worth living for, worth dying for, worth giving your life for, worth giving everything for. There is only one vision that can really give meaning to the whole of life, and that is the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And you know, secular humanists have all sorts of copies of A Better World, but they all borrowed from the Judeo-Christian eschatological hope of the new world that God has brought to us in Jesus Christ. There is no other vision of reality that can possibly give meaning to life, and I tell you what can definitely not give meaning to life is the culture of our modern age now where everything is to do with me getting pleasure and freedom to have that pleasure any way I like, any time, it's all about me. And you know, philosophers told us long ago that hedonism is a great philosophy, but it's self-defeating because everybody who lives for their own pleasure never gets it. But when you live for a vision that's much bigger than you, that consumes your every imagination and explains the meaning of the whole of your life, And you pour out your life for that. Guess what happens? You discover freedom and meaning and joy. And that's why the kingdom of God and Jesus. And, you know, I gave gave my life to Jesus when I was 18 years old. Crisis conversion. And I have lived for this dream ever since. You know, to say with Martin Luther King, I have a dream. Man, I have a dream. And this is the dream you should be living your whole life for. The great thing about this dream is you don't have to become like a professional Christian pastor to do it. You don't have to join the staff of the Cardiff Vineyard to be able to live for the kingdom of God. You can live it in the bank, in education, in the environment. Because all that we are involved in can be the place where we live out bringing God's kingdom into this world. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we can be sold out for this vision in every career that is possible when we understand the big picture of the kingdom of God as the only overarching narrative that explains the whole of life. And then we live in the story, the story of God's destiny. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing like this as a destiny. Destiny worth living for. And so my challenge to you is, if you've been playing around with God, quit. Just decide, look, there's nothing else better than this. I am going to decide today, this is my vision for the whole of my life. This is gonna be the reality that fills my horizon. Jesus Christ the one in whom the kingdom has come. And I I promise you, there's no life better worth living than that life.